And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to return back to James. We've taken a few weeks off with all the uh, crazy things that have been going on. I want to get back to James and see if we can reestablish some continuity here uh, with the book of James. And uh, as I've said uh, a couple of times before, uh, James and Matthew are probably my two favorite books in the New Testament. I love the Jewishness of them. I love the practicality of them. I love kind of just the level at which they, they hit our lives. And uh, James is uh, the brother of Jesus, uh, the cousin of Jesus, the friend of Jesus, a close person to Jesus. And his apple does not fall far from Jesus' tree. And when you see and analyze the way James is teaching here, it's just like Jesus. And so you have this really great connection. In fact, probably most scholars think the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and the book of James were probably early catechisms for new converts to the church and for children. And so it was kind of this, this wisdom, these sayings, this way through life that really turns everything on its head that was at the heart of what the first followers of Jesus, who called themselves followers of the way, this way of living life that Jesus was teaching and living and instituting, that was so sacred to them because by living this way, you actually met the living God. You met the Father in your moments, and that experience was what was transformative. So, where we left off, (laughs) where did we leave off? James begins with his idea of endurance, You know, to count it all joy when we encounter trials and tribulations, when the fires and the floods come and uh, mess up your day and your week and your month. You know, what do you do? Count that joy because it is an opportunity for growth. It's an opportunity for your endurance to move into that perfection, that perfect result that is the maturity, that is the ability to live life even without any visible means of support. And so he moves from that notion, and then he moves into this idea of not judging, not judging by appearances. So if you have a rich man and a poor man entering your place of of gathering and worship, treat them exactly the same. Don't give the rich man any favors, because that appearance, that judging by appearance, that creating a standard in your head by which you judge others, then becomes the means by which you separate from others. And separation is the key here. What God is about is unity. The Jews named their God Alaha, which means unity, means oneness, means connection. And so separation is understood as sin. Anything that leads to separation is sinful. Anything that leads to unity and connection is righteous. And so this idea of not judging, not creating these compartments to put people in that make us us and them and create separation from each other, doing everything that we can to be equal across the board, to have everyone at the same level as everyone else. And the early church practiced that under James' headship for 30 years after the crucifixion. So this idea that separation is sin is really well embedded into our psyches as human beings because the thing we fear most is separation, isn't it? Fear of abandonment, fear of not connecting, fear of not fitting in. I mean, how much addiction and compulsion and obsession is fueled by the fear of abandonment, the fear of separation, the fear of not fitting in. And it's judging the judging that we do ourselves that creates so much of that fear. Jesus said, don't judge because the standard you use will be applied to you. Not by God, not in retribution for what you've done, 
but by yourself. As soon as you create a standard, you're living it. As soon as you apply it to somebody else, it already applies to you. And as soon as there's, as soon as there's something that we have to do in order to, what, curry God's favor? To gain his acceptance? To gain his love? Then how do we ever know when we're good enough? And that hamster wheel starts, and we're on it. And then we put others on it, at least in our own minds. That is the trap. That is what James and Jesus are trying to get us to move back from. Now, just last time that we spoke, he introduced this idea of the law of liberty. Follow the perfect law of liberty, he said. But what's that? He's going to go into more detail now. So let's just take a look at where he's at, at James 1, verse 22. And it's in your bulletins, or you can take a look up on the... (laughs) We're kind of a cyclops now. We only have one screen. But take a look up there, and I think you'll probably have it. James 1.22, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely healers. I'm sorry. (laughs) Prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Okay, so we've got this idea of the doer of the word that's connected to the law of liberty. What are we going to do with that? Well, in Greek, this idea of word, the word used there that is translated as word is logos. And you've heard that probably before. And it occurs prominently in John. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. What does that really mean to a Greek thinker? especially a first century Greek thinker. It's much more than just a word. It's much more than a printed word. It's much more than a spoken word. It's more than a thought word. It can mean word as we understand it, but it can also just mean speech in general or a speech that carries a larger message. It can be an account of something. It can be the reason for something. It can be just the principle of order. See, the Stoics, who are one of the the Greek philosophical groups, they understood Lagos as the divine animating principle. It was sort of the reason, the principle, undergirding everything that was. So the unifying force, the the order around which everything in the universe turned was this idea of logos. So it was huge. And John picks up on that, doesn't he, in his gospel. He uses logos in that sense, where God, where Jesus are that underlying principle, that order by which everything is made. If you just look at John 1, you'll see where he's talking about there. The word was made flesh, but everything that is comes from this word, flows out of this word. It's the ground of all being. It's the reason for all existence. So doers of this word starts to take on a larger context. But it's even more pointed in the Hebrew, not surprisingly. In Hebrew, the word is hadavar, Hadavar Yahweh. And ha is just the definite article. So it just means the. Davar means word. Yahweh is their name for God. Hadavar Yahweh, the word of God, literally. And I wanted to read a little bit here because this I'm hoping I can make some of this clear to you because if you can get the larger, more encompassing idea of the word of God, so many things are going to start to make sense to you. 
Ancient Hebrews possessed a type of mysticism in relation to the word, or Hadavar Yahweh. And mysticism, if that word is new to you and, and you've heard it used in a negative sense because it was looked at as a cult or whatever, we're going to pull that definition back. A mystic to us is someone who simply believes that they can have direct communication with God. Okay? In other words, we're not working through religion. We're not working through any sort of, of practices or rituals. We can, in and of ourselves, have direct communication with God. If we quiet our minds, if we really listen, if we're paying attention, that is what we're talking about in terms of mystical. It's being aware of the unseen world, the unseen energy that is spiritual. And I think we can all at least agree that we are all mystics from time to time in that particular sense. So ancient Hebrews possessed a type of mysticism, this ability to see the unseen world in relation to the word or Hadavar Yahweh. It stood for the entire body of teaching, principle, and goodness that was identified with Yahweh. There isn't one single English word that can translate this meaning of Davar. It's a combination of message, revered teaching, all-encompassing philosophy, just precepts, and wise advice, all those things can be part of this idea of word. When the message, which is another way that we can use as a synonym for word, when the message or word of Yahweh comes to the prophets, it is not merely a set of words that is given to them, but an entire body of understanding of what Yahweh is and stands for. Okay? It's huge. As a result, when a prophet is questioned or tested, they can draw on this message and speak further. The message is everything that Yahweh is. Everything. God's holiness, power, purpose, justice, moral law, wisdom, and love. The sum total of everything that comes from Yahweh and has an active effect on this world, that is Kadabar, the message. We sometimes talk about Shem, some of you have heard me talk about Shem because we all tack on the end of our prayers in Jesus' name. And that's because Jesus said, if you pray in my name, then I will answer, right? And so we take that very literally. And so we put in Jesus' name on the end of every prayer and hope that, you know, like a rabbit's foot, it's going to get us what we're after, you know, make us, uh, make us really acceptable to God in some way. But Shem, used this way, is much like Hadavar in the sense that, Shem is much deeper than just a name. In Hebrew, it means the essence, the inner character. It literally means the external face of something that points to an inner essence. And so the Shem is literally the reputation or the character or the essence of Jesus. If we pray in that character, if we pray in that essence, literally what it means is we're praying as Jesus would pray. That's about the best definition of an answered prayer that I can think of, right? We're praying as Jesus would pray. If we're praying in the Father's name, if we're praying in the Father's will, will is another word that also is very synonymous here. Because the will isn't a legal instrument in this sense. It's the deepest purpose. It is the pleasure. It is the delight of God. So the will, the Shem, the Devar, they all speak to this complete inner essence. It's okay to keep saying in Jesus' name. We're going to keep doing it here. But hopefully it's a signal for us to return to the real intent, which is that we need to live in that character, in that essence of Jesus. That's what communion is all about, getting 
and realizing that we're totally taking into ourselves everything that Jesus is, everything that the Father is, because Jesus and the Father are one. And so this idea here of Shem is really important. Now, the message is so powerful that it can be experienced. On Mount Sinai, God's glory passes before Moses, and Moses witnesses God's goodness, love, graciousness, compassion, justice, and mercy. This was the essence of Yahweh, which was revealed in the glory to Moses, Hadavar, the message. When the prophets experience the message for the first time, they are terrified by it. You could look it up. Because the full force of this power becomes apparent. The full force of this power becomes apparent. They are awed by its purifying holiness, and they come to realize that no human word they can produce can even come close to the divine message that they have witnessed. Why terrified? Why would you be terrified by this? Because this message, Jesus called it good news. When he took all that God is, when he took the word of God and then laid it out in his teaching and in his life to his friends, his compatriots, he called it good news. Why? Because it is literally the essence of who the Father is. He and the Father were one. He was living it, he was showing it in his relationships, and he was trying to teach it. But this essence of the Father is so radical. It's so different than anything that we experience in life that it requires everything of us to be able to see it as it is. We have to literally strip away everything that we think we are and everything that we think we know because all of that conditioning, everything that we have as our identity right now is conditioned on a completely different set of rules. It's conditioned on conditional love. It's conditioned on the fact that we have to work to earn our keep, work to earn affection, work to earn status. And there's this whole other way that God operates that has nothing to do with any of that. And if we don't divest ourselves of all of that, and that is a scary thing to do, to let go of everything that you think you are, to let go of everything that you think are the visible means of your own support, the means of your own survival, to let all that go is terrifying because what's left? And what if there really is no one there at the bottom of this dog pile who cares about me, who has my back? Or as Einstein said, whether there is a friendly universe or not, what if, what risk am I taking here? This is terrifying. To give up the illusion of our own power, the illusion of our own control, to stop trying to exert control and manipulating our circumstances to bring them into our own way that we see it should be, the way we see the world, to earn nothing, to lose our sense of entitlement. This is frightening stuff. You know, we don't really want to be receivers. We want to be givers, right? We want to be givers. We want to give. We don't want to receive. To receive means we're dependent. To receive means we're vulnerable. We all have God complexes, which is what Leonard Sweet said. I love that idea. We all want to be in the superior position. We want to be giving down the chain of command. You know? And it seems like it's really righteous to do that, and it really stokes our, our, our pride, because we're giving, right? We're supposed to give. But what have we received? 
And if we think that the things that we gave are things that we earned, the things that we were entitled to, then we retain our sense of power, we retain our sense of control, and the way, the kingdom, the hadavar, the message, the good news, the shem, all of that is shelved away from us. We will not be able to see it unless we can turn that corner and realize how vulnerable we really are. Become like children who are completely dependent on the adults around them. And allow that showering to occur. Because for every moment that we're feeling entitled, we cannot feel grateful. Because we earned the things that we have. And we don't realize that anything that's worth having can only be received. It can never be taken. Because it's free. It's here. It's now. What control do we really have anyway? Jesus said, can you turn one hair white or black? Can you add one inch to your stature, one hour to your life? If you can't control those simplest things of life, those most basic things, what control do you really think you have? We're standing on a mud ball spinning in space. You know, what do you think you got going for you here? Well, we got a lot. As long as we realize we're like children, as long as we realize that we are receivers first, and everything that we give is only what is flowing through us from that source. We work with addicts and alcoholics a lot here, of course. And anytime we see an addict or an alcoholic that we're trying to work with who is angry, who is resentful, who is accusatory, pointing fingers in different directions, who is demanding, we understand they're not ready to see recovery yet. They're not ready to see kingdom yet. That attitude, that way of looking at life, that compulsion to hang on to control and to absolve self from personal responsibility is the exact opposite of everything that kingdom is. It is not possible to have recovery. It's not possible to enter kingdom until we finally hit that first step, that first step of of AA, the 12 steps, to admit that we're powerless. Our lives are unmanageable and we need a gift that we could never give ourselves which mates perfectly with Jesus' first step at the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be poor in spirit, it's an Aramaic idiom, a phrase that means an attitude of poverty even if you're rich. It means not demanding. It means not domineering. It means seeing everyone at the same level, no more or less, which allows you finally to be able to see the essential nature of things This word of God is the ultimate reality of things. And the ultimate reality is there is this love, this self-existent love that is never withheld and always showered upon us. That first step, without the vulnerability, without the sense of dependence, submission, childlikeness, you aren't going to be able to even see that there's such thing as kingdom because you're at odds with the basic reality of life. Standing outside, looking in, wondering why you still feel the way that you do. They go on here. They are odd, the prophets, are odd by its purifying holiness. The message is purifying holiness. They come to realize that no human word they can produce can even come close to the divine message that they have witnessed. They realize that they can only sublimate their own words to this message The only response when God bestows the message on your soul is to follow it with humility and the spirit of service. This message, this word, can't be reduced to our words, to our language. 
It can't be transferred from one person to another. It can only be experienced. We can't give each other the ability to ride a bike, play a musical instrument, learn a second language. These are things that have to be immersed in, experienced through. For me personally, when I first read the Ragamuffin Gospel, Brendan Manning's book some 25 years ago, I was finally introduced to the kind of love that I'm talking about here. And it blew my mind because growing up Catholic, never heard of such a thing. You know, you had to earn everything. You know, you only got to keep what you killed. It was, it was that simple. It was this, and they made no bones about it. You know, salvation was by the word, but it was also by works. It was by what you did. It was by going to church on Sunday and doing confession and everything that you had to do. All these things were part of it. And when I found myself in an evangelical church, even though they said we're saved by grace, yeah, there was a lot of works down there too. We still had to do this and we had to do that. And yeah, your brother, come on in just the way you are, but you better clean up fast or we're going to get you out the back door. You know? And so they were a little sneakier about it, but it was the same idea, same thing going on here. And so what I had to actually experience over the next 10 years, I'm a slow learner, I understand that. But I first got the concept, and it took me 10 years before I had the first, what I consider a breakthrough, that personally I understood at such a deep level that it now began to change my life, that I really was loved that way that God couldn't love me anymore and God couldn't love me any less because his love was already all there was. All the reality there is, is God's love. And it took me 10 years of working through a process of my own that finally allowed me to experience enough of those moments with that love that I finally began to trust it. And that was everything. I remember doing centering prayer for the first time with somebody and she said, that didn't feel like prayer. <laughs> I said, good, then we're doing it right. You know, because it doesn't. When you step away from the words, when you step away from the rote prayers and even the thoughts in your head, it feels so different and it doesn't feel like anything that you would connect with prayer. But it's a deeper form of prayer. The first time that you really experience the word, Hadavar, Shem, this message, it doesn't feel like anything you've felt before. It doesn't feel like religion. It doesn't feel like law. It doesn't feel like ethics or morals. It feels like freedom. It's a completely different experience. And that's a good thing, because if that's what you feel, no matter how foreign, no matter how disturbing, you're doing it right. It's going to upend you. It's going to throw you for a loop and spin you around because it is so different than the normal way that we experience life. That's why Jesus' message was always so paradoxical. It's always trying to get us to understand these things. You know, if you want to be first, be last. If you want to sit at the head of the table, sit at the foot of the table. If you want to find your life, you have to lose it. What is all that about? Except to let you know that if it feels familiar, then you're not really on the way. Because when you get on the way, it's going to feel radically different. And it's going to be beautiful eventually. But at first, it's just going to mess with your head. <laughs> when we first experience that nothing is ever withheld, that it's always showered on us, when you realize that all this stuff that you think you earned was just given to you, it's just changing form, you're just manipulating, moving things around like on a chessboard, that begins the process of stripping away any self-righteousness that you might have, any sense of entitlement, any pride. 
and it finally gets you down to the point that all that remains is the gratitude. Just a sense of, oh, thank you. Thank you. Couldn't have done this on my own. That childlike humility is where we get to. That is kingdom, is what Jesus is telling us. That attitude, that experience, that way of relating, when you know that you've earned nothing, you deserve nothing, and you're denied nothing, what's your only response to that? Gratitude. It's like winning a lottery, you know? Having a winning lottery ticket. And it's even better than that because you didn't even buy the lottery ticket. Someone gave it to you. Hey, I want you to have this. And you win. And you got that thing in your back pocket. You know, an obscene amount of money. I don't know, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. What would that do to change your attitude toward life? If you had that lottery ticket in the back pocket, think some crazy number. Would you still be worried about your finances? Would you be worried so much about your job? If someone asked you for money or you saw a need, couldn't it just flow to you because you're never going to make a dent in this sum, right? How would that change the way that you live your life, to have that in your back pocket? The truth of the matter is we are all lottery winners. (laughs) We all have that ticket, and it's not just money. Nothing so trivial as that. We've got everything that the universe has to offer. This is the good news. This is what Jesus is trying to say. Once you've experienced it, once you know that it's in your back pocket, you have the freedom to be able to live life at a different pitch, at a different level. Do things that were too frightening before to do. To really start to love and relate as God loves and relates. To become one with God, the way Jesus said that he was one with God. All of this is what is happening when we actually move into this direction. So, this word is all that God is. It's God's will, his deepest purpose. It's the principle of unity. That's the word. In a nutshell, that's what the message is. Everything is one. Everything connects to finally see that. And that kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, is only experienced in the midst of that kind of unity and connection. In unity, we do what the Father does. No more, no less. Exactly what Jesus said about himself, right? I only do the things that the Father does through me. I don't do anything that he doesn't do. And the idea here is that there is always action. Everything is always moving. And then James introduces this wonderful image of the man in the mirror, right? The man who looks at his face in the mirror, walks away and forgets who he is, what he looks like, what kind of person he is. And it's this vivid image of hearing the word, but without any unity, without any connection, without the experience having driven it down to a place where we can actually use it. Have you ever met a person and they tell you their name and about five seconds later, two sentences later, you forgot it again? Oh, God, I hate that. Because you feel like an idiot having to ask them again, Right? Ever read a paragraph from a book? And you go through the paragraph and you realize, I have no idea what I just read. And you've got to go back and do it again. This is what James is bringing up to us. You look in the mirror, you see something there. It appears real for a second, and then you walk away and it's gone. The name is gone. The understanding is gone. You see the face of the word. You agree to believe it in your mind. But you walk away unchanged because the process hasn't taken place. You haven't experienced it. This law of liberty, 
law of liberty is what he's talking about. Isn't that sort of an oxymoron, don't you think? The law of liberty. Y'all know what an oxymoron is, right? Taking two things in paradox, putting them together, things that should be opposite. Kind of like freezer burn. Pretty ugly. (laughs) How about a work party? Peacekeeper missile. Loner's club. Military intelligence. And my personal favorite, Microsoft Works. See, the law of liberty is right that we're taking two things because as soon as we think of law, we think of restriction, don't we? We think of limitations. We think of something that is impinging upon us. So how in the world is law freedom, law liberty? Because Jesus and James are both trying to get us to stop thinking legally and start to think relationally because it's the only way that any of these words are going to make any sense whatsoever. This perfect law, this perfect law of liberty of God is not an absolute code to obey. The word doesn't even mean that. Torah in, in Hebrew doesn't mean law the way we think of law. It's instruction or guidance. You know, it's just a hand at the small of your back just kind of pushing you through and, and guiding you. Stay away from this and move over this way. It's not an absolute code. We can't think of it that way or we'll never understand how law leads to freedom. We're not going to get that. Guiding principles would be a good way to understand law. That the basic reality of life that we can live comes through this funnel. Ever, ever, uh, you know what a jello mold is, right? Have you ever made jello in a jello mold? Okay, so you make the jello up, it's a liquid. You got a mold, you pour the liquid jello into the mold, you let it set there for long enough, and then you can pull the mold away, and the jello looks like the mold, right? Simple. The law is like a jello mold. We pour our lives into the mold, and if we hold it there long enough, we can pull the law away, and we look like the law. The law isn't supposed to be there forever like training wheels on a bike. At some point, you're supposed to learn how to ride that thing. And now the training wheels are just slowing you down. We have to learn that the function of the law is simply to funnel us in a direction that will give us the direct experiences of God's word, direct experience of God's essence, so that we can build the trust enough that we can then move from there. Jesus said that, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And heaven and earth will pass away before any one last bit of this law becomes obsolete or or passes away itself. But the word there, abar, passing away, means to cross a boundary or a threshold. So it's fascinating because what Jesus is saying is until heaven and earth cross boundaries, actually merge into each other, become one thing, the law is necessary and needed to that point. After that point, it's not needed anymore. And that point can occur in your life at the moment that you finally merge heaven and earth, that you see the oneness and the unity even in the midst of all the individual form and function in your life around you and all the different people and everything that seems so different. But at that moment that you see that unity, you don't need law anymore. You don't need to follow rules anymore because you will be the law. You'll be living it. It'll be pouring out of you. The Jews said to themselves in Deuteronomy, you know, the law should be written on your hearts. God said that to them. When that time comes, we don't need law anymore. When we're one with the law, when we're one with the word of God, we become unity itself. We know the truth, Jesus said at that point, following this way, 
Know the truth and the truth will make you free from the fear of separation because the truth is we're not alone. The truth is God is exactly who Jesus says he is and he will never leave or forsake us. We're blessed when we do the word. That is, experience God's essence. The word, the law. It's all about practicing presence. It's all about practicing relationship. Now what James does in this next section is he turns the argument around. Instead of looking at it from the point of law, he's now going to look at it from the point of faith. And he says, what use is it, brethren, at verse 14? This is chapter 2. And we're skipping around in James because we're trying to group all the topics together. James kind of returns to topics over and over again, so we're grouping them together. That's we're going out of order here. But chapter 2, verse 14, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? You know, we called our food pantry over here Storehouse 216 because that verse right there is James 2.16. Go warm, go in peace, be warm and filled, but we don't give you anything? What use is that? But someone may well say, you have faith. Did I miss something? Yeah, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But you are willing to recognize, you foolish, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Now, Martin Luther, back in the 16th century, hit that passage and the top of his head came off. He called... James, the epistle of straw. He wanted it stricken from the Bible because everything that he was about about in the midst of the Reformation was that faith alone saves. It wasn't about works anymore. He was trying to get out from under the yoke of Rome and so he was trying to just move away from that whole idea of tradition and and works-based salvation. And, And so he was working just on solely faith. But what he did was he misunderstood the Hebrew intent here. That faith is not intellectual. Faith is not what we think. That's belief. Belief is idea. Faith is actually action. To a Jew, faith is a consistent action that you take that will eventually give you the experiences of God that will bring trust. Belief is idea. Faith is action. Trust is experience. The only way we get to trust, and our lives don't change till we get to trust, believe me, Not really internally from the inside out. We don't experience kingdom until we trust enough. And so this idea is that faith can't be separated from works because faith is works. But not works designed to earn something. Works as a flow. Faith does save, just as Martin Luther said. But liberation, salvation understood by the Jews, was liberation spiritually here and now and not about entrance into the next life. And so once again, it's about what happens right here and right now. This is what they were really, really concerned with. Works don't create faith. The works are the faith. Consistent faith creates the experience that creates trust. 
because it creates the knowing of God as he really is, his essence, his word, his devar. And knowing God is oneness and the freedom to live, as we said, and do as God does. God's spirit is always in motion. Wherever you see God's spirit, ruach, ruha, is defined by motion. Those words mean, mean spirit, but they also mean wind and breath. Constant motion. If we're one with God, then we're in constant motion. And there's no way to, be, to undo that. If we're not in motion, if we're static, we're not moving with God's spirit because it's always in motion. You know, people really don't understand how electricity works. They don't really understand. They have all these theories about what's actually happening. So when you look at an outlet, an electrical outlet, if there's nothing plugged into it, there's really no electricity there as we understand electricity. When you plug something in and a light goes on or a motor turns, now there's current, now there's electricity. Until it's in motion, until it's connected to a load, until it's doing some form of work, you can't really say that electricity even exists. The potential for electricity is there. But until you do some work with it, it doesn't really exist. Is that okay with the engineer in the room? Okay, he's, he's nodding. I'm good. All right. Faith is just the same way. We can have the potential for faith, but if it isn't plugged into anything, if there's no load on the circuit, if there's no work being done, how can you say there's faith? Because God's spirit is always in motion. Are you in motion? Is the flow that is coming to you from God emanating outward and just passing right through you? You know, Your cells only keeping just what is needed for the moment and the rest going through to someone else who needs that flow? Needs that love. That's what we're talking about here. This is really what's going on. The only way we can know our faith exists is when it's in motion. And when we reread that last verse 20 there, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. If faith were only in our head, then the demons would have faith. They don't have faith because they don't have works. Their works don't match the understanding that they know of this God that they fear so much. And not fear the way we're supposed to fear, but are terrified. You see what's going on here? What's really happening, what he's trying to get across. And then finally he moves now to verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see, that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not Rahab, the harlot, also justified by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. You probably all know the story of Abraham when he was asked to sacrifice his son Isaac. It seems like a really weird thing for God to do, right? Abraham was promised that his descendants would be like the sand on the seashore or the stars in the sky. He knew that that was a promise for God. Yet he had no son. And he manipulated and tried to figure out another way to get a son because he's getting all old. He's like 100 years old and he still doesn't have a son. And then the miracle child Isaac comes along, Yitzhak. And he says, ah, oh, the promise is going to be fulfilled. I now have a miracle son to fulfill the miracle promise of God. 
And here God asks him to sacrifice that son. The very mechanism, the very thing that he was clinging to that would affect the promise that he so dearly wanted to see come to fruition. Abraham's faith was letting go of the last thing that he was clinging to, to trust that no matter what happened, that promise was going to be fulfilled. And it was, just in a way that he would never suspect. Because it wasn't only by bloodline. His followers, his family, his descendants are all of us who have similar faith who are willing to give up the last thing that we're clinging to, that we are trying to use to control and to manipulate our circumstances and let it go. And Rahab, sometimes you'll hear her called Rahab, she was a prostitute, she lived in Jericho, and when the conquering armies under Joshua come in, she sides with them, she sides with Joshua's spies, and she saves them from her own people. Why would she do that? Something in her had prepared her that when she came face to face with the presence of Yahweh, that she recognized it for what it was and she acted accordingly. Against everything that she had been taught, against all of her culture and training, she went a different way. It was the movement through. It was the risk taken that showed that the law of liberty was in action in their lives. And what law were these two following? Think about that for a second. Abraham lived at a time before the law was handed down by Moses. There was no law. What law was he following? Rahab was a Canaanite. She wasn't under the law. What law was she following? Not the law as we understand the law, not the code, not the rules. They were living in a connection, a communion, a presence with God and God's spirit that allowed them to act in ways that were very uncharacteristic for themselves and for anybody. Neither one was following law as we understand it, but they were both liberated by this law of liberty. See, we don't need to know law to know God. We don't need to know law in order to know God's word, God's will, God's kingdom. Now, following the law can help. It can funnel us down into those experiences, those moments where we begin to know who God is because we're actually living with him. But the code, the rules itself, is not it. By experience, we understand his unity. The training wheels eventually have to come off so that we can fly. Augustine of Hippo in the 4th, 5th century, he wrote that, love God, and do as you please. A recipe for disaster in most of our hands, right? Right? Really? Do we really have that kind of freedom? Love God and do as you please? When the law is written on your heart, when you have become the law, when the jello mold has stayed on long enough, that's exactly what it looks like. Know God. Know who he is. Know what this good news is. Know the radical extent to which it takes you and then fly in freedom, liberated, free from fear of aloneness or separation. And remember this, if it doesn't feel like law, if it doesn't feel like restriction, if it doesn't feel like limitation, you're doing it right. (laughs) Keep doing it that way. Because knowledge of God, connection with God, feels like everything being lifted off, not white-knuckling it, not dry-drunking it. It's just freedom and liberation. And when you look in the mirror, 
you'll know who's looking back at you. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the ability to sit here and talk about such things. Thank you for the gift of your word, both in printed form and living and active in our lives every moment. Help us to put the two together. Help us to see how they work together, intertwined, to take us exactly where we need to go. Help us to be structured and disciplined and and dutiful even as we get up every day wanting to know you better, using each moment to further our connection and relationship with you. Thank you, Father, for everything that you give us. Thank you for loving us the way that you do and help us never forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, let's stand.